too long. If you guys know, um, I think the church record has been set for myself that uh, this last Jonah series, we finished it in four weeks. I've never preached anything um, where it's a chapter at a time. So last time I preached it, I think it was 11 to 12 weeks. Okay, So I'm hoping to go to Nahum, but I also don't want to be such a drawn-out thing. So if you guys should just pray ahead of time just for my study. But today, I think what we're going to do is actually just introducing the book of Nahum first. Okay, Just introducing the book of Nahum. Um, so this is more of an introduction. And then next week, we will look at um, what I hope is chapter 1, verses 1. Um, and, and actually the rest of chapter 1, okay, we will look at. Um, but today I just want to look at several things. Um, we're going to be looking at authorship, purpose, and other aspects of the book, just so we could be more familiar with it. Um, and then later on, uh, I would actually also email this out also as well, um, you know, the, just the outlines, okay? Um, there'll be some modification um, along the way, okay? So, but here is going to be what we're going to do is what I normally do for, uh, I know most of you guys aren't necessarily there when I'm preaching on Sundays with church. Usually when I begin a book, let's just say I began Ephesians, I would often just begin by a survey of like, what is the whole book all about first um, as introduction? And then we go verse by verse. Okay. So same thing. Um, there is also, we're going to look at book of Nahum. Okay. So if you guys open up your table content, anyone know where Nahum is at? Um, Nahum. Um, is in the Bible, okay? It's in the Minor Prophets, okay? You guys remember how we just finished Jonah? Jonah is one of the Minor Prophets, okay? I would actually say I'm on the 12 uh, books in the Minor Prophets. Uh, the the 12 uh, books in the Minor Prophets. I would actually say um, Jonah is the one that's more narrative, more story-like than, than the others. Um, but I think when we look at Nahum, it is perhaps more prophetic proper, um, as we often think of, of prophetic literature, okay? And why I want to do this is because I actually want to balance out the purpose of Jonah is also as well, um, I, I think it balances it out because it's still talking about Nineveh, but it balances out where there's one of salvation, there's one, another one, with the book of Nahum, there's also a book of judgment, okay? I think we need to be also realize that, um, that God is a God that, um, as we will look at this, um, we need to also realize that God takes sin very seriously, and we also should also as well, okay? So Nahum, just a bit about Nahum. Uh, so first we begin looking at authorship, okay? So tonight the structure I'll have is um, author, authorship, oh man, uh, authorship, oh my computer's freezing, uh, purpose, then we will look, uh, you know, a closer look at the book, um, also as well in preparation for um, the future, and also, how does this book relate to other books in the Bible, okay? Um, how does this book relate to other books in the Bible? So that's going to be our, our rough structure. So to begin with about the authorship, um, it's, if you turn with me real quick to Nahum 1.1. The author is mentioned in the beginning of this book, uh, Nahum 1.1, uh, even as we turn there. Um, and it's identified the author is none other than Nahum himself. Where it says, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Ashkelonite. Okay, so here we see, um, little is known about this prophet. Um, there's actually no mention of Nahum, the prophet, outside of anywhere else in the book of Nahum. Okay, and even when you look in the book of Nahum, there's not a lot of autobiographical details that he's given. Uh, I think um, 
there's discussion of like, is Nahum quoting God when he says I, right? Um, or is he talking about himself? But even when he does say I, he doesn't give any more details about his own personal um, life and, and journey, okay? Um, his name, I think maybe there is um, related to even the theme of this book. His name, Nahum, in Hebrew actually means comfort, okay? His name actually means comfort. I do think there might be precedents with even some of the other minor prophets um, where the names of the prophet in light of God's sovereignty, um, even the name of the prophet brings a message for the people, okay? Um, like, for instance, Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, okay? Uh, Zechariah, if you guys know his name, means God remembers. And that's an important book because if you know the book of Zechariah, that's actually towards the end. Um, it, it's, it's actually post-exilic. What do you mean by that? It's written after... Um, the exile, when some of the Jews, a very small remnant, returned back to the promised land. They're trying to rebuild the temple. All of that was going on. And God even sent prophets later on um, in the last days. Three of them specifically that we know about is Malachi, Zechariah, and, and Haggai. Okay, And if you know, the, why is that book important? Because while they're building the temple, they're also being struck like saying, Hey, we're rebuilding the temple, but it's nothing like what we read in the Bible where there's a glory of God. And if you guys even remember, there's some, even those who are older, look and they're weeping and saying, the glory of God has not returned. So then that leads the question to say, are they doing things beyond what they are? And God is saying, you know, don't forget, I still remember you. You continue to be faithful to God, but I, I remember you. So I think the book of Nahum also brings comfort, okay? Brings comfort. Um, as we'll explain a little bit more why it brings comfort. It has to do with taking a picture of not just only of uh, of Judah, which is where he's from, but taking a bigger picture politically of the geography at that time, the most powerful empire that even makes other people, whether directly under their empire or what is called um, vassal states, that is uh, other countries that might not be under the Syrian empire, they still have to pay dues and money and give labor. Um, so in light of this, it brings comfort in that way, in light of a very oppressive um, empire that is operating um, and even hurting Judah and Israel, okay? So, um, it also says in Nahum 1.1, so uh, again, for those that have joined in, we're looking at surveying the book of Nahum, so that we're setting things up for next week onwards to look at Nahum verse by verse, okay? So, in looking at the authorship, like I mentioned, little is known, but also mentioned in verses 1 that he is the Eshkelahite, okay? Um, so, this is saying he's from a town called Ekash, Okay? But the location of this is uncertain. Um, there's at least four suggestions of where it's at, okay? Um, the most unlikely one is someone says it's near Nineveh, okay? Um, but I, I don't think that is the case. I think he's probably in um, in Judah where he's writing, where he, the home country he's at, okay? Um, so, so in light of this, um, uh, with that, uh, Nahum... I think as an author, very likely wrote, we might ask the next question, okay, when, okay, from the little that we do know, when did he write? When did he write this book? I think a clue is indicated. If you guys look with me, this is jumping ahead of time. Uh, we'll hopefully touch on this in a few weeks from now. If you guys look with me in Zach, uh, Nahum uh, 3.8. If you guys could turn with me, Nahum 3.8. Josh, could you, you have the NIV or NASB tonight? You might need to unmute. Um, uh, 
And it's really okay. Would you be able to read Nahum 3.8? And then later I'm going to ask you about the footnotes. Are you better than No Amman, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with waters surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Okay, thank you so much for reading that. Um, fascinating verse, because what we see here is one of the ways we date the book of when Nahum is written is actually this verse is an important key factor because um, no Amman is mentioned as a city where God is saying to Nineveh, like, hey, you think you're a great city, but don't forget, just because you're so great, you should not have the view that you're so big, you cannot, um, you cannot be destroyed, right? Um, where it's too big to fail. Because some people have that view, something's too big to fail. And then God is saying, hey, don't think of yourself, Nineveh, as this uh, great city that can't be destroyed. Because you look at another city called Noaman. And then, Josh, if you do have your footnotes, or any of you guys, um, other than being called Noaman, there's a footnote. What city is it have under your footnote, Josh, for the city of Amman? Okay, um, yeah, it's Thebes, okay? Um, so this is the Egyptian name for the city, which is the Egyptian city of Thebes. And Thebes was actually pretty much at times functioning as the capital uh, of the Egyptian empire. Or this is where, would have been where um, the pharaohs would spend his time uh, at, okay? So, and that city was actually destroyed. So I think when he's pointing to this, he's saying, hey, you Nineveh know about your rival, their great rival was Egypt. And even the great rival of Egypt with Thebes, uh, Thebes was destroyed. Um, so they're pointing to it and say, hey, this is a reference, okay? So um, so this, w the destruction of Thebes would have, was around um, 6... It was actually destroyed and rebuilt again in 654 BC, okay? 654 BC. So it has to be after its destruction, um, or at least the memory, historical memory of its destruction. But of course, the book of uh, Nahum is predicting, as we'll go over purpose, one of his purposes is saying, a you Nineveh will be destroyed by God. And the destruction of Nineveh uh, would have taken place at 612 BC. So the timeline of this, I think we could get pretty precise, or more precise than maybe some other books. So it would have been somewhere between 654 BC to 612. Okay, one of the reasons why I actually want to go over this book, even as we go over, is I actually think Nahum gives so much details, historical details, of what's fulfillment. It's one of the reasons why I actually think the Bible is true, just because as we go over this, it is for crazy the amount of details God says of how Nineveh will be destroyed. So you also see this dating where it's a lot more exacting. It's somewhere between its destruction in 612 and 654. So around somewhere around that time period was when it's written. And you, you might think, oh, wait, that's a big gap still, 654 to 612. Well, think about in history how close that would be, right? How close that would be, um, well, how little data sometimes we have of things that survived. And this is pretty incredible. And what's more incredible is um, Nahum is actually a short book. How many chapters are there? We'll talk about this in a little bit, but three chapters. In this short book, there's enough historical details to put the timeline of roughly when this is, which to me is pretty incredible, okay? Pretty incredible. Um, reasons why I think it is written by Nahum is simply because it says so, right? Um, as we see in the beginning of Nahum 1.1. So let's, after now talking about authorship, now I want to go over purpose, okay? Uh, purpose. Uh, later tonight, I'll email this out. 
Um, I'm going to quote various different individuals um, in terms of what they, um, in their book called Introduction to the Old Testament, what they would say. Let me back up a little bit. Um, anyone ever hear, hear um, seen books before that's usually really big called Old Testament Introduction or New Testament Introductions? Um, I wish someone told me before I went to seminary that introductions is different than surveys. Uh, Mandy's been in the seminary world before. Surveys are classes you have Bible surveys. Um, usually in the beginning, right? That you give a survey of what each book is about. Introduction is not to be confused uh, with survey. In theology, there is a distinction. Introduction often deals with um, matters before you uh, study a text. Things of like the manuscript, okay, the um, um, the amount of manuscript, when it was written, the authorship, all of those things that are like, um, I'm now borrowing a little bit of things maybe that Kike would appreciate, like in a, almost like the pre uh, prerequisite, almost an, almost a presuppositional fashion of things before you even go through that. So, in the seminary world, um, I guess I'll ask Mandy too. Like when you were taking class, was the Old Testament introduction towards the end of? the um degree program or is that in the beginning i'm just curious mine was the beginning oh in the beginning okay wow okay uh wow okay that's interesting uh mine was uh, all towards the end was the old testament introduction new testament um again that's distinct from the survey where we're saying hey this is what each book was um where we're, now you're dealing with the textual criticism um the reliability of the manuscripts or or you know also book themes and that kind of thing and the theology uh, of each book um in a way that I thought was much more uh, thorough than the survey class. Th thank you for mentioning that. Um, I think TMS took the old school Dallas way of doing things, where the OTI and TI is like the last, and I think Westminster does something similar too. But let's go back on. Um, so Mark Rucker, um, who wrote uh, his book uh, on, you know, just Old Testament survey, he wrote, writes this as the book's purpose statement. The book of Nahum is devoted exclusively to the announcement of the destruction of the city of Nineveh. The prophecy gave hope to the people of Judah, who have long been terrorized by a serious, constant, and ominous threat. Okay, So he's saying the book is devoted, he doesn't even say primarily, he actually says exclusively to the announcement of the destruction of Nineveh. Okay, To the destruction of Nineveh. And it's also giving a prophecy. The purpose, as he mentioned, is actually to give the people of Judah hope. Okay? To give the people of Judah hope. Um, later on, I'll get this a little bit. Um, there is actually some people. Oh, this, I think it's probably a thin minority. That actually thinks, in terms of Bible scholarship, there's some people that think Nahum is probably a nationalist. Now, if you ask me, I think there's something about maybe, you know how today there's so much buzzword about Christian nationalism, that kind of thing. Um, I actually don't think reading this, this is a guy that says, oh, you know what, it, uh, Judah's always right, okay? Um, just a little bit of insight. It is going to focus on Nineveh's destruction. But when God talks about Nineveh's destruction, he's not saying, oh, because Judah's better than, than um, Nineveh. And he's not also saying, okay, you know what? Judah is on God's side. God is on Judah's side. Because if you notice, when it, as we look next week, when we look at the first chapter, um, look with me real quick in Nahum, um, uh, chapter 1. Uh, if you guys could look at, ooh, this is not good. I'm doing this on the fly. Um, so I want to say, uh, oh, man. Okay, I want to say Nahum 1.8 at first, um, but it probably is not. 
Okay, yeah, in verses 7, where it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows and He knows those who take refuge in Him. I like even this part as well, go over next week. He didn't just say, okay, you know what, God's going to rescue. He's already announced judgment in chapter 1. And He didn't say, okay, God's going to rescue Judah. He actually says, those who trust in Him. Which, by the way, not everyone from Judah necessarily trusts in Him. This is a time period where there's a lot of gross violation of sin. Other contemporaries... Um, give 100 or 200 years before and after Nahum um, would have been different prophets. Like even in Israel, like Isaiah was in Israel, was already even saying, hey, you Judah, your leaders, your people are sinful. Okay, which was about 100, 150 years before. And then even prophets afterward were saying, hey, Judah, your people are sinful. Um, and yet here in reminder of this is saying, hey, don't take this as na- Christian nationalism or, or is, you know, Israel nationalism kind of thing. Um, yet God will say hey, only those who trust in Him will be what rescued. Okay, So the purpose of this is to bring comfort for, for those who trust in God and to continue to trust in God and also to know the plan of God that He will judge Nineveh, the capital of the Syrian Empire. Okay, According to John Walton, uh, John Walton in his book, he mentioned that the purpose of the book, and I'm quoting now, the purpose of the book of Nahum is to pronounce the doom of Nineveh. Okay? The doom of Nineveh. And one, one of the reasons why I actually was thinking about doing Nahum, I've been going back and forth, which one should I do, was I thought in the end I'll just go with Nahum and just have to trust in God to work through this, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, just making the time to somehow to, to do these messages. Um, one of the reasons why is we left off of Jonah. In Jonah, which came um, before the book of Nahum, we saw that God was gracious to what Nineveh. Did God destroy Nineveh at that time? No. Okay, God was gracious. But that doesn't mean just because God was gracious in the past, we should not assume that God is always going to be gracious to a nation when a nation later on with other generations does not repent. So the good news of Jonah needs to be counterbalanced with this truth that we cannot like domesticate God or neuter him in such a way it says God is always going to show grace. This is a reminder that God is king. He is Lord. We should obey him. He's not on our side. We have to be on his side. And he's a God that does judge sin. And this is a reminder of that. Okay. Um, there's also, I'm going to be quoting now. This is my old, te- uh, way back in the day, my, one of my professor, uh, Richard Mayhew says this of the book, under Jonah's preaching in 760 BC, the city of Nineveh repented but soon return to her violence, idolatry, and arrogance. The city of Nineveh seems impregnable, but through God, is, though God is slow to wrath, He settles in full in 612 B.C. Okay? Um, so, He's giving basically the whole history timeline um, uh, with that and, and tying it in with this book. Okay? So, if I were to put this in one word, what is the, in my own word, what is the book of Nahum about? is God is comforting Judah, the God's people, by saying, as wicked as uh, um, Nineveh and Assyria is, God will judge sin. Okay? God will judge sin. And then even when we look at this, I think there's some things that are timeless we learn from this. Because are there always going to be evil government around? What do you guys think? There will always be evil government around. It's part of the sinful human condition. That's a constant. And will there be other countries and other places? Um, I think we must never take it for granted, even where America's at politically. Um, things could change. You know, uh, things could change so much. Um, we often think of ourselves as number one superpower. 
But things could easily change now with politics. We often could think of war, at least for the last 30 years, of all these small third world countries we fight. But that's not always a given when now there's been other strategic competitors in the world, right? With uh, increasing militarized... I'm, I'm not... Don't worry, I'm not... This is not a Republican message, okay? Um, but in an increasing militarized world of... Uh, of strategic competitor like China and Russia and th things of that nature, things aren't necessarily always going to be stable, okay? So we need to realize in light of this, this message is timely for anywhere in it, many places, especially with believers in um, most parts of the world where they do face much more oppressive, direct oppressive nature uh, of Satan's attack, especially through the vehicles of pol politics and governments and different hostile nation states, okay? So let's look at the structure real quick. Um, uh, the structure, again, I'll email this out later. Um, so one of the structure, this is from my professor, the way he divided this, um, he just, uh, Dr. Mayhew's way is just two points. Number one is God's majestic holiness in chapter one. And then point two is Nineveh's judgment in chapter two to three. That's how he divided this. Um, and a longer outline that I would have is, and this is what I'm going to try to preach uh, as, okay, um, which is going to be subject to change as I'm going along, as I'm studying the text myself. The longer outline would be the title is in verses 1 to 1, okay? Then Nineveh is judge in verses 2 to 15, okay? Chapter 1, verses 2 to 15, okay? Then the Lord's judgment on Nineveh is described more in details in chapter 2, okay? The difference between chapter 1 and 2 is you see that in the midst of all this judgment, and remember the primary reader of Nahum is not like in Jonah. Jonah is the primary people that heard the message um, in terms of Jonah as a prophet when he was alive, was Nineveh, repenting. Then he wrote about it later. And then those who were God's people, the Hebrews or, or the Jews, or those in Judah would have read it, okay? Now, in Nahum, I don't think necessarily we know for sure that Nahum was would have been sent and therefore Nineveh would have read this. I think its primary audience is actually for those in Judah, okay? For those in Judah. Because even at this time, when we look at First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, there's a sense where even at this time, Assyria was already, what, making its influence felt in the Middle East, and specifically, even um, with Judah and Israel, because Judah and Israel is almost like a land bridge that you have to go through to go to Egypt. And if Egypt and is always invading people, then they have to cross through what is called the Levant, which would include uh, geographically um, Israel and Judah. Then also likewise, also as well, when the Assyrians, in trying to flex their power, they would have clashed at times with who? With, with Israel. So there's this sense where they're caught in between. Judah and Israel, kind of between two powerful countries, two powerful empires, excuse me. And then therefore, in light of this, there would have been influence in various ways, whether direct dominion or number two, even as vassal state of saying, okay, well, you, I might not be under you, but I have to give you some money because you're scared. You know how uh, incredibly crazy and, and wicked the people are, okay? So in chapter two, one to two, uh, we'll, of course, we'll go into this more later, but if you look at verses 7 to 12 of chapter 1, you see the Lord's care described to Judah. Okay, so you see its purpose is not just only manifestation of God in verses 2 to 6. And then you also see there's a joy of deliverance. Okay, 
um, even for instance in verses 12 to 15 where where they're celebrating okay um, of God's deliverance and in the details when you get to chapter 2 um, chapter 2 could be broken down into two more section um, this chapter 2 has 13 verses you see Nineveh's attackers being described in verses 1 to 5 okay you see Nineveh's attackers being described in verses 1 to 5 uh, and then in verses 6 to 13 you see it's, it's Nineveh's defeat okay as we get there um, in the next few weeks um, I think the prophecy is so amazing. Um, man, um, the historical details, some of it which we'll discuss about tonight. Um, we the Nineveh's destruction is actually written by others. It's not primarily written by those in Nineveh because they would have been destroyed and the people would have been scattered. It's actually written and attested. I was pleasantly stunned um, a few years ago when I started looking into this, just how much record of not only the Persians, um, even like the Greeks, but even the Babylonian records, which the Babylonians was, or maybe it's a better word, we call them now the Neo-Babylonians, but in scripture we often call them the Chaldeans or Babylonians, how they describe, written down the details. And when those guys wrote down the details, when you compare with Nahum, it's incredible, the details. And again, these guys are not writing to make the Bible look good. I don't even know if some of those guys even know the book of Nahum was written. But it's incredibly fascinating. If there's a book that I think is pretty short that you want to read through to see the fulfillment of prophecies past, man, Nahum, I think personally for me, is one good example um, where you could do that. Isaiah maybe is pretty big, right? But Nahum to me is, in, is enough of a bite size uh, for that. Okay, and in chapter um, three is Nineveh's total destruction. Okay, Nineveh's total destruction. Um, this could be divided into three more parts: um, uh, destruction and humiliation of Nineveh in verses one to seven. By the way, this outline is not original to me. This is actually from Walter Kaiser's. Um, he has a, a biblical theology book called The Promised Plan of God. Um, if you guys know me long enough, you know that I'm a really big guy. If you guys probably seen from last week, I really like Genesis 3.15 is a controlling part of a biblical theology of the expectation of the Messiah. Where, where when you look at Old Testament passage, some people might say, why do we expect the Messiah here? I actually think it's because of Genesis 3.15. There's that prophetic seed that you're expecting. If you're introduced to a hero in the beginning of the story, that means throughout the movie, right? If you're watching a movie, you're hoping to find details, hints, and shadows uh, of what? Of the... Uh, of the hero to come, okay? So, it's almost like you know Aslan is there, but you haven't seen him yet, but you hear people talk about it. Then therefore, you why would you not, if you were watching one of C.S. Lewis' uh, movies, right, or books, why would you not expect Aslan to be, eventually show up? You, and you've been looking for traces of Aslan. So, same way also as well, okay? Um, so, no, Nineveh's total destruction um, in verses 1 to 7 is, is her humiliation, and destruction. Then in verses 8 to 17, you see the futility of Nineveh to defend itself. Okay, so it's going to focus in more details where um, they're trying to defend themselves, but it isn't going to be successful in verses 8 to 17. And then there's almost something like a dirge or like a funeral lament in verses 18 to 19. Okay, so let's take a closer look of this book. Um, we'll be looking at different parts. Like, what does it teach us? Why is this important? Um, I actually think it teaches us about God. Number one thing we should get from this is it teaches about the character of God. Okay, In order to understand why would God destroy Nineveh, it is important to understand the attributes of God first. Okay, By the way, let me say this real quick. When you read through Nahum, um, 
even it's short enough that you could just read it even you know like later on tonight when you read through Nahum I think one thing is very clear um, unlike other ancient Near East literature God is not saying oh I'm going to destroy Nineveh because I don't like their ethnicity there's nothing in there um, the primary motivation is actually theological is because Nineveh it's not even just political military it's not just saying okay God's going to defend Israel and Judah or specifically Judah because it's God's chosen people do I think there's part of that that is true but it was more than that. The issue is not, okay, I'm going to show and weaken it and I don't like, I want a balance of power or, you know, God is not a neo-realist in terms of his foreign policy. No, what God is doing issue is, is the issue of um, Assyria and Nineveh has a bad theology, okay, uh, has a bad theology. There's a book that Manny recommended me, I just finished. Um, and even as I'm preparing for this, reading other books, man, the Assyrians love to boast about their wickedness, about their violence. And they would often do it in the name of their God, of saying they need to promote their God elsewhere. Okay, You can look at it one way cynically is to say, oh, you know what? That's just a theological cover for their sinfulness of greed. Or another way you could see it is also it could be both. And also there's some people that very genuinely believe in their God and is trying to advance that. Okay, I think there's a combination of both is the best explanation. Their theology driving that okay um never forget politics is always downstream from theology or religion okay um so we see uh, i know caleb just joined in we're doing a survey of the book of nahum to prepare us for the next few weeks of studying through nahum okay so you see the character of god turn with me real quick to genesis no correction nahum chapter 1 verse 2 nahum chapter 1 verse 2 if i could have josh would you be my happy motivated reader and the next one afterward, I want to ask if Kike could be my next motivated reader. Okay, Nahum 1 2 first. Josh. A uh, jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes the vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Okay. So when we look at this verse, we see here, I mean, I love this. This is just the beginning of Nahum. And he's already, God is already making very clear after the introductory subscript introduction of verse 1 it's already giving us characters and attributes of god what are our attributes of god we see here verse 2 if i summarize it is god is what a god of wrath that goes against sin okay notice it says he's an avenging god okay he's a god that's going to because of israel's sin uh, correction of nineveh's sin god is going to turn it back on him okay um as we know the passage vengeance is what the lord right He's, in other words, God is an avenger, okay? Um, some of you guys know me. Um, I personally think at our church, I watch the least amount of movie. I watch a movie at a rate of about one movie every two or three weeks. And you guys know when I usually watch movies? is right after this Bible study is over, on Tuesdays only, I would go grab food, food and just watch things. And coincidentally... Um, I just started watching Avengers. Now, I am so behind with Disney movies. Like, I like some of you guys were talking about Spider-Man. Some, yeah, some guys are talking to me about Spider-Man. I am just barely watch Avenger Age of Ultron, right? And I'm, and I'm one of those guys that watch few movies, but I think I talk about it. I think about it forever, right? I think of biblical motif. You know, I was just even like um, coming home today from getting haircut. I was thinking, hey, you know, the Age of Ultron is almost like this guy rage read hg wells time machine but then he just reversed it around where you know like a hey, evolutionary process why do we assume things would always be positive and let's just get rid of man right if that's the ultimate purpose is pure evolution but anyways going back on god is the avengers of all avengers okay 
Notice he's a God, being the God of wrath is also described in verses 3. Um, could you read, uh, Kike, if you could read Nahum 1 3, and the next reader I want to ask is Mandy afterward, if you can. Okay. Uh, Kike for verses 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Amen. Okay. In this description, again, further details, right? Um, he's the God of wrath, but also notice his power, um, as I mentioned, is great in power. Okay. Great in power. Um, by the way, I think if we could have even some kind of interrelations with Jonah and this book, uh, I think they kind of balance each other. Um, we, if you guys remember, I mentioned about the word great or big is mentioned a lot in uh, Jonah, right? Jonah 1, 2, 3, and 4, right? There's that big storm, big ship, um, what else? Big whale or big fish, right? And then there's the big city of Nineveh. There's the big, what else? Um, big tree, right? Also as well, or plant. Um, and here's the same word, big, appearing also as well. But now it says God is the one big in power, okay? So in other words, he's omnipotent in some ways, powerful enough to bring about his execution of his wrath, okay? And yet also, notice in verse 7, in light of all this, this could be very scary. You might say, this sounds, what makes him different than the other Ashapars or whatever else with the Assyrian gods? Notice in verses 7, Nineveh, a question, Nahum 1.7 is very, very important, okay? Mandy, would you be able to read for us Nahum 1.7? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Amen. Okay. So Nahum 1.7, okay, is what is we have just read, okay? Um, I love Nahum 1.7. Anyone has read this verse before? By the way, let me, even as a quick survey, who read Nahum in the last year? <laughs> or maybe two years? 2020. Good. Okay. Praise God. Okay. Um, I, I actually looked it up. Nahum is not necessarily the most read book. You know, BibleGateway.com keeps a record. Of like what is the most searched verses, right? And even most searched, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, books. Um, I actually like uh, going through this. Okay, I think for most people, I actually think most people. This is probably applied mainly for Californians. I actually think I'm a little biased. I actually think most Californians kind of know Nahum one seven for one reason, and it might not necessarily be spiritual. Is because there's a burger chain out here called In and Out. Okay, now In and Out. Any of you guys have In and Out before? Burger place. Um, to me, is my favorite. Okay, In and Out loves to have what? It's a Christian-owned company. Underneath their cups, underneath their things, what do they have? Do they have them in Texas now? I think they do, right? In and Out. Okay, praise the Lord. Amen. That's that's a good thing. God's work is being done there. Okay, so Nahum one seven is actually one of the verses that's mentioned there. Okay, um, all these power. God is a God of wrath, God is a God of avenger, and God is a God who's omnipotent. must also be kept in mind that God is a good God. That's what Nahum 1.7 is telling us, okay? The Lord, notice it says, the Lord is a good God. And how is He good? How does He manifest His goodness? Is In verse 7, the second line described it, that He's a stronghold in a day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him, right? So He provides refuge for people. And notice his goodness is also that he's, um, how he's also good is if you go back to Nahum 1.3, the first line is, he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger, right? 
Um, all the attributes of God we've looked at, now we see this um, being, it, you know, Nahum's not a systematic theology book where it's listing all this, but it's what God's attributes in real life, um, real life sequence of life and geopolitical reality, reality of this evil empire called the Assyrians, okay? I encourage you guys, if you guys really have nothing to do tonight, you could just go to Google and look up images of like the different stels um, images that they carved. They would like to have these big, huge statues or, or I don't know what you call it, obelisk or whatever, where they have all these incredible, I mean, just look it up, the, the description of how big some of these things are. When people go visit their palace, they'll be from other places for diplomacy. They'll see all these horrific scenes like, you know, it's like worse than comic books, right? All these violence and everything, people being killed in the most brutal way. And then they'll go over there and then they'll say, hey, we don't really want to be your vassal. Then they see, oh, look at all these things. They kind of reconsider in light of this. They're boasting of this, okay? And yet God is saying what? He's good. He's going to be slow to anger, but he definitely will judge with that, okay? A bit about Nineveh also as well. When is Nineveh first mentioned? Um, if you guys could turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. Verses 11 to 12, okay? Genesis chapter 10, verses 11 to 12. When we turn there, could I have Christopher? Could you read Genesis 10, verses 11 to 12 for us? Again, Genesis chapter 10, verses 11 to 12. Genesis chapter 10, verses 11 to 12. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, or Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Yeah, amen. Thank you for reading this. Um, uh, what is going on in Genesis 10, if you know the context, this is a table of nations. This is saying after the flood has happened, Noah and his descendants, they're breaking up into different parts. Now they're the source of various uh, tribes and various people group. Okay, And notice in this passage here, um, it talks about that Nineveh was built by what? Nimrod. Okay, Notice Nineveh was built in Assyria. Okay, um, There's a recognition of this. Um, that this is going to be the reality. I do think the influence of Assyria, there were different times. Nineveh was strong, uh, okay? The most powerful was during the time of um, the book of Nahum, okay? There were times even when it, it waned influence, but it kept coming back and forth, okay? Um, and yet we see here with this, um, Nineveh was, was you know, uh, first mentioned then. It was a capital, of course, for the Assyrian Empire. And many violent kings came from Nineveh. Even names that we kind of recognize today, like um, you guys know King Sargon. You guys perhaps hear that, or if you guys some, you guys that listen old school rap. Sometimes people mention Sargon. Um, you know, people, you know, certain rappers like Sargon. So there, there's that violence part. Okay, one of them is Sennacherib. Okay, just to put this in perspective of just how violent these kings are, if you guys could turn with me to Second Kings, chapter nineteen, verse thirty-five to thirty-six. Okay, Second Kings, chapter nineteen, verse thirty-five to thirty-six. I want to ask real quick. Um, Caleb, would you be Caleb? Would you be able to be my happy, motivated reader? Is this convenient for you? I should have asked earlier. Second Kings nineteen verse thirty-five to thirty-six. Second Kings nineteen verse thirty-five to thirty-six. He says, uh, verse thirty-five. Yes, sir. Chapter nineteen. Assyria departed and went home 
Thank you so much for reading that. Okay. I mean, Sennacherib was going to invade. He was one of the kings. He brought an invading force to Judah and surrounded Jerusalem. Okay. By the way, um, just to let you guys know, this event actually is recorded even outside the Bible from Sennacherib or the Syrian view. Um, of course, they're not going to write things all friendly in their, you know, they're not going to be all biblically friendly. They explain it in different ways. They just said, oh, we cut them off. But in this story here, what happened was they're cutting them off and they're going to go and destroy, uh, you know, Jerusalem. But in, before they did, God was gracious to Jerusalem. And guess what happened? God, the angel of the Lord, went and struck 185,000. Think about that. He's bringing an army of eight, uh, 185,000. That is a lot. Okay. To put this in perspective, even in the height of the United States um, involvement in Iraq, there was nowhere, there was not 185,000 soldiers. And 185,000 soldiers just for one city of Jerusalem, right? Just a small country of Judah. This is an incredible force. 185,000 were struck in his army, okay? And when morning rose, you know, they were dead, right? So Sennacherib then, well, losing all these forces, he went back home. Now, the Sennacherib actually wrote about this in his record. He just said, oh, you know, I surrounded um, Jerusalem and made him like a bird cage or whatever kind of thing. But that's his way of saying, I didn't take this. So the, there's biblical confirmation. But of course, remember, there's their bias, right? They're not going to write, oh, yeah, I lost 185,000. Their God struck me, right? Just keep that in mind. People always have biases, right? It's the same thing like even today's news, you know. Um, I just read an article, uh, I think it was on newsbusters.org, uh, that was saying about CNN did not report about all the problems in CNN, the news. <laughs> Obviously, there's a reason why they didn't report all the pedophilia stuff with all their, you know, um, like two different producers, right? Or the sexual harassment of like uh, Chris Como and, and the other guy, Don Lim. There's a reason why I didn't mention all that because it's CNN, okay? It's CNN, but then there's other sources that confirm it. So I think in the same way, there's an agreement that they did not, which is kind of strange too. If you bring 185,000 people and you don't invade, then the question is, what were you doing, <laughs> right? What you're just bringing 185,000 people and have to feed them with all the taxation just for nothing? So obviously, you know, there's something that I, I think uh, conf confirmation of a biblical narrative with that. Okay, um, so in verse 36, it confirms he went back to Nineveh. Okay, so when Nahum prophesied, Assyrian terrorized the ancient Near East. And maybe, you know, like, have you guys ever looked at history and realized sometimes the more things change, ironically, the more things are what? There's nothing totally new under the sun, okay? True or not. There's things that are totally not new under the sun. Um, this is one of the reasons why I love history, is I do really believe we can learn a lot with history. And I also think, um, a nuance view, sometimes you learn in history is that, man, some problems will always kind of exist because of the geo um, uh, you know, political geographical reality of things, right? Because of limitation of resource and stuff. But I think the closest analogy we could maybe appreciate this is, do you guys remember ISIS was not that long ago? The Islamic State, do you guys remember this? They were pretty violent and pretty brutal too. In fact, I think the reason to be brutal is to be able to expand and people to give in to them out of fear right away. I actually think the area that they kind of encompass is, is in the same area, general vicinity of Mosul. Mosul is a city a little bit north of Nineveh, or the ruins of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, of course, is Assyrian. Today, historically, um, most Assyrians are culturally Christians. There's either um, Assyrian Orthodox, 
which has a, is very different a little bit from Eastern Orthodox. I think there's a Nestorian heresy. That's another sermon another time. But yeah, they're culturally um, Christian with that. But nevertheless, it's the same kind of thing. Expanding empire, right? Trying to crush people. And the countries they didn't crush, they would say, hey, we'll do business. We'll sell you oil underground to be able to fund all our violence, buy our bullets, you know, so they could be able to fund their wars. Countries like Turkey and, and Syria and things like, of that nature, okay? So it was pretty... Uh, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Uh, did the Romans know about the, like, city of Nineveh? I think so. I think they knew a lot more than perhaps we even realized. I think they were very cosmopolitan. What do I mean by cosmopolitan? You know, a long time ago, I once said that in a sermon where someone was like, oh, I can't believe you, you sinner. It was like cosmopolitan in the sense of multicultural, okay? Um, in, in that sense, I think they were probably quite aware, well aware. Although I don't think they might necessarily have known exactly where the ruins were at by the time they were around um, with that. It seemed like it kind of died off in history um, and disappeared rather quickly, um, the ruins. Uh, it was right away became pretty, what I mean, I shouldn't say right away. Within 150 years or so, it was irrelevant to such a point that the city was lost, the ruins. Does that help you, Josh? Okay. Yeah, that helps for me. Okay. Um, so that, and I think they would have known this because there's classical writers, again, not Roman writers, but there's Greek writers. And if you guys know Romans infatuation with everything classical, like with the Greek, with the historians, Herodotus, all those things, that's, I think their source would have been, um, with that. Okay. So when, um, the Roman empire, by the way, did not expand all the way there. Um, back in that time, by the time you reach to like, um, what's that area called? Um, by the time you hit Syria. And beyond in the Jordan, that's there was another empire called the Parthians at that time period. The Parthians for a long time was a buffer between um, the Roman Empire and all those other Eastern empires. You think of the, um, you know, continental India Empire and the Chinese Empire. Although there was trade that was going on with you know with with, um, with, with different kinds of trade um, going on between. Um, those uh, groups and the Armenians would have been one of those groups that was in the middle interesting enough I don't want to go into too much details right now sometimes these guys in these intermediaries that were not in their empire adjacent to their empire would have often been used as mercenaries especially towards the Roman Empire towards the end when they had less of their own soldiers their citizens prefer not to fight that kind of thing okay but that's another sermon another time let's go back on um, so then we see all of this then we ask the question what is according to Nineveh Nahum what is Nineveh's sin um, so I'm going to just do a survey of this. Of course, we're going to see more of this or, or unpack this more in details. Nahum 1.11 mentioned one sin is they plotted evil. Um, it says, For you have gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So it wasn't just a sin. It was that they were premeditated about it, right? And by the way, even in today's court system, we acknowledge the difference between accidental manslaughter, you accidentally kill somebody, and when you're premeditated, is that is you're planning this you're thinking beforehand what you would do, right? One has more guilt than the other. So you see that they were plotting evil, according to Nahum 1.11. Let's look at Nahum 3.1. Josh, would you be able to read Nahum 3.1? Or did Josh just log off? Okay, whoops. Josh, would you be able to read uh, Nahum 3.1? Woe to the bloody city 
Yeah, so the city is described as a woman and is saying it's a bloody city. It's a violent city, okay? By the way, you know how Nineveh does all this destruction everywhere? Going destroy. One of the ways they would, you know, one of the ways they would intimidate enemies is they would actually, when they kill enemies, they would stack them up, right? So people could see far away, like, whoa, they're stacking up limbs or bodies, right? Which is a way of saying, hey, this is a mountain to intimidate you. But they didn't only do that. They sometimes would even bring back, what, heads of kings that were, well, actually, they would do this mainly for people that they conquered that were rebellious, okay? Um, just to be an example, they would bring back the heads of some of these smaller kings, client kings, or whatever, and they would parade them in the streets also as well. So when you see here, it's a bloody city. Um, I think God's word was pretty accurate um, and pretty literal about this from what we see with the data we have from Assyrian sources. Also, another sin is in um, Nahum 3.4. Nahum 3.4, I'll read this one. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nation by her harlotries. So what we see here is there's involved with sorceries. It's promoting magic and like the occultic stuff to what? Everywhere they're going, they're passing uh, upon uh, to others superstitions, okay? And then Nahum 3.19 says this, For on whom has not your evil passed continually? This is the second line of verse 19. I'm focusing on that. This is to say, they not only did these sins, but they did them, what, continuously. Okay? It was a habit. It was a regular thing that they were doing. They were normalizing heinous sins. Okay? So, we see this, and I just want to even, I'm going to mention a little bit, just a bit of a survey right now. Um, these There's so many predictions that actually became literally true. Um... As I mentioned earlier, uh, this is now I'm going to go over that Nahum is an incredible book that shows prophecies fulfilled. We know in 612 BC, Nineveh was destroyed for good by coalition forces of Babylonians, Medes, and Scythians. Okay? By the way, if it helps you to remember um, empires in the Roman Empire time, I often think of ABC. If it helps you, like the different captivity or a different time they were exiled, I often think of it as Assyria first, the Syrian captivity or Assyrian exile Israel, the t 10 northern tribes away. Then later, the last two tribes, right, with Judah, the state of Judah, um, was what? They were exiled by which empire? The Babylonians. So after the Assyrian Empire, um, it was the Babylonians, uh, which is like about 60 miles away, went up and beat the city like crazy, and then they became the world power. Okay, so that was the Babylonian. And I think the other empire I kind of try to remember of the exile is C for Caesar. Okay, not perfect, but the Roman, um, when they destroyed 70 AD, if that's helpful. Um, at least for me, I need these little cheating things to remember stuff. Okay, um, so look at his uh, description. Okay, look with me in Nahum 3.12. If you guys could open up to Nahum 3.12 for me uh, real quick. If I could have Abigail, could you read for us Nahum 3.12, my lady? Nahum 3.12 Nahum 3.12 All your fortifications are fake trees. Oh, fortification. Fortification. Fortifications are fake trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the e eater's mouth. Okay, thank you. 
I like how you said fortif fortification. It's fortification, okay? Um, that's pretty good. That's better than how I would have read as a kid. Um, so here you see um, that their fortification was taken and destroyed. The Babylonian chronicles actually mentioned that fortified towns surrounded Nineveh, and they were beginning to fall in 614 BC. So two years before the total destruction, they were already having a big siege. Uh, uh, what's called um, not siege, siege, right? They were taking the city, surrounding it, cutting it all off, and this mentioned details is like, wow, this confirmed. Uh, with this, okay. So the first fulfillment is six twelve, the actual destruction, right? When the um, Medo, um, with the Medes, and along with the uh, alliance of Babylonians and Scythians, they destroyed that, okay. Um, the third one is the destruction of prophecy fulfilled detail. Is uh, we look at three thirteen, okay. Uh, Hannah, could you come read for us three thirteen? Nahum three thirteen. Come close. So that we could hear you. Did you see Nahum 3? Oh, you open. Okay. Yeah, your version. Okay. 3.13. So this is New King James Version. Or you want to read mine? Which one? Whatever one is fine. Right here. Behold, your people are... Women. Women. And your... Mitts. Mitts. The gates. gates of your land are open with... Wide. Wide to your enemies. And also goes on and says, fire. 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 Consumes. Consumes your gate. Bars. Bars. Okay, thank you so much. Okay. Um, obviously, this would have happened in order for the enemies to come in, right? The fortification would have been destroyed. Okay. The gates would have been destroyed. And also mentioned that the fires would have been involved. Okay. Now here's, you might say all this is, yeah, of course you always expect in wars there'll be fire and destruction. I think it gets even more uh, more detailed in this description, okay? That I think this one is unique to Nineveh. Um, or what I mean by unique is, yeah, it happened maybe in other places similarly, which I think Babylon had the similar thing. But it's not like everywhere is the same, okay? But Nineveh's uh, unique destruction, if you look with me in Nahum uh, 3.11, Nahum 3.11. Mandy, would you be able to be uh, read, read that for us? Nahum 3.11. In the next read, I want to Go ahead, sorry. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. Amen. Okay, thank you for reading that. So it mentions that somehow Nineveh would be drunk with wine. Okay? Um, and there's actually a Greek historian named Diodorus. Uh, Cicluus, okay, Cicluus is spelled S-I-C-U-L-U-S. He actually described um, that enemy forces learn from deserters, from the Assyrian soldiers, um, that the night of the expected attack, they were actually, the soldiers guarding the gates, guarding the fortification of Nineveh, were busy eating and drinking, okay, prior to the attack. So this prophecy got fulfilled to the T. That they were be busy drinking and celebrating. By the way, I think something similar also happened with what? With Babylon. If you read the book of Daniel, right? Um, they were busy celebrating that very night. I mean, man, God took over. Um, and yet this is interesting because the Greek historian here, um, this is far way later. But I also think this shows that this guy actually did his research. That he was dealing with enough credible sources um, to say, um, I mean, just the depth, like I mentioned earlier, 
I, I mentioned earlier that the Babylonian Chronicles mentioned this. That's Babylonian source because they're involved in destruction. Now you even see a classical source, a Greek source in another continent confirming um, this, uh, the, the prophecy of Nahum. Again, I don't think these guys are writing to say, oh, I really want to show Nahum is true. I think some of, very likely, they might not even know about the book of Nahum. But these are confirmation, okay? If you guys look also as well with me in Nahum 1.8. Hui, could you read Nahum 1.8 if possible? For us, Nahum 1.8. Yeah, there's a fascinating description here, what Hui meant, read. Notice it says there's an overwhelming flood. There's an over, you know, people could say, is that, flood is water. Is this literal? Um, if you look with me again in Nahum 2.6, if you guys could turn with me Nahum 2.6. Rebecca, could you be my happy motivated reader to read for us Nahum 2.6? Nahum 2.6. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. Okay, and then 2a, one more. Verse 8. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout our days, now they are fleeing, stop, stop, and no one turns back. Okay, thank you so much for reading that. So these three verses, okay, Mandy thinks you did a good job. Okay. So these three verses, interestingly enough, mention about flooding. And I take this probably very likely as literal um, with the repetition of this. Um, and the same Greek historian I mentioned earlier, Diodorus Siclus, okay, he actually described how in the third year of the siege, there was heavy rain that caused a nearby river to flood part of the city, which then broke its wall, okay? So God used that to destroy. So when you describe all this, you might say, um, what's the significance of this? Don't forget, this is actually, in Nineveh. this is in a very desert climate okay the fact that there's a water destruction all this thing um shows its detail right it's not saying okay this is not by the way this is not the equivalent of a thing of saying okay you know what california this upcoming summer in la there's going to be a desert fire which you probably expect this is saying in the middle of the desert there's going to be flooding that's going to destroy nineveh okay this is incredible and by the way there's also description of destruction by fire look with me to nahum 213 Nahum 2.13. Abigail, could you come be my motivated reader to read for us Nahum 2.13? Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots and smoke a sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so there's destruction by fire. So she, okay, so there's destruction by fire that's mentioned. Okay, by the way, it mentions about even the hunting of the young lions and all of that. That's one of a serious way of saying, hey, my, our king is strong. Look at all the hunting. And they have often very graphic picture of hunting scenes and stuff like that. And archaeologists have found what? Ashes and proof of burning in the temple and palace area of, of, of Nineveh, okay? 
So there's also a description of a great massacre. Nahum 3.3. 3. Uh, Nahum 3.3. 3. Uh, Hannah, would you be able to return to read for us? Nahum 3.3. 3. You want to come closer to read so they can hear. You can use your Bible or mine. Either or. Nahum 3.3. 3. Horsemen. 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 Charging. Charging. Sword. Sword. Flashing. Flashing. Sword. Spears. Spears. Gleaming. Gleaming. Many. Many. Slain. Slain. A mess of corpses. Corpses and countless. Countless. Dead. Dead. Bodies. Good. Bodies. They. Stumble. Stumble over the dead body. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, for reading that. Oh, that was pretty graphic, but you know, it's God's word, right? Um, but here's described, and we know from historian Theodore Seclus also said there was a massive massacre that happened once they were able to break. Once the walls broke, okay. There's pillaging, um, and uh, plundering and pillaging described in two nine and ten. Where it says, I'm going to read this. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Well, from every kind of uh, desirable object. She is empty. She is, yet she, yet she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish in the whole body. And all their faces are grown pale. And according to the Babylonian Chronicles, the guys that did this kept record, they took a lot of spoils from the city. Um, and it, they even said it's beyond counting. All the things they were able to take, okay? Um, there's description of soldiers fleeing in 317. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Um, you, your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. So according to Babylonian captivity also, the army of Syria ran away before their king, okay? There's idol destruction described. I'm going to go a little faster because of time. Uh, Nahum one fourteen is mentioned about idols being destroyed. Archaeologists have actually found headless statues of the goddess Ishtar. You know the ironic thing is Ishtar was big in Assyria. Um, later the Babylonians would uh, adopt that also as well. Um, when I was in uh, Iraq in Babylon area, there were um, whatever was left of their museum because uh, after the war there was massive uh, unrest. There was massive looting everywhere. And they told us Marines not to, they didn't want us to hurt civilians. They told us, don't do anything, just let the, them loot. Unfortunately, some of these very precious things were stolen, but there would be um, God, uh, you know, goddess statue of Ishtar with heads in Babylon. But at that moment there, they beheaded it, you know, with that, okay? And final destruction is Nahum 1 9 and 1 14, okay? So, and I'm going to end soon. Um, I think all of this is fulfilling all the prophecies before, 100, 200 years before in Isaiah. Um, and even afterward in Zephaniah and Zechariah about how Assyria would be destroyed, okay? Um, but I actually think one way, because um, every time I look at a book, I always think, is there a way that we could look for Christ? You know, when I look at Nahum one fifteen, I think this is incredible. It says, Behold, on the mountain of feet of him who bring good news, who announce peace. This actually thinks, makes me think about Romans 10.15, right? About, about how we're... Paul says, how would they preach unless they are sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Um, and I think about this, and this is actually a form of comfort for Israel. 
a correction for Judah. And also for us too, that we need to realize, I know it's not very popular, sometimes we look at some of those psalms that, descri- uh, that are impeccatory, that describes the enemies of God being eliminated. Or even this theme is not just Old Testament, because there's some people that say, oh, it's just only for Israel. There's a theme that's in Revelation. There's no way you could read Revelation without seeing the destruction. And I think in Revelation is at a, at a scale, unlike anything we see um, described in, in some of the earlier books of the Old Testament. This is a global um, enemies of God being destroyed. So I think there's a sense we must see this and even with this comfort, but also make sure we have a choice. Will we be enemies of God or will we trust in Him? And I hope it is that we trust in Him as we go over this. Okay, let me stop at this point. This is no longer recorded.